Welcome to episode 7 of Whiteness in America. I'm Erica Britt. I'm here with... I'm Tom Bell. Tom Bell. And we're going to have a really good conversation today about this term racist. Yeah, you're and, a racist. Yeah, you're totally a racist. And, you know, just got just to gotta deal with it. That's <laughs> you right. got to deal with it. I'm not a racist. Yeah, I mean, you know, you might be. But, you know, yeah. we, we, that's all right. We're going to work with that. That's right. And then we're going to blow that word just completely up. Well, Erica is, and I'm yeah. going to watch. <laughs> so, so join us for this conversation on racism and racist, being a racist, and hopefully when you find out that you're a racist, you'll do something about it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. We're heading into the studio. So here we are, back in the studios. Back in the studio. We don't have our live studio audience today, but it's okay. we got a lot to unpack. So. We do. A lot has happened since we last so much were together. Happened. So much has happened. Um, but I don't know. Do we just jump right in? Yeah, let's do it. Let's get right. in there. So. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> so as we look around and like, ah. Well, where are my notes? Where are my notes? Uh, Toni Morrison. I yes, think that's where we were going to exactly. start. Someone who has, has spent a career centering blackness mm -hmm. in a time where all we want to do is talk about white folks exactly so this is this will be good so yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and i think she's a perfect um person to bring into this discussion because i there's this famous clip of her doing that interview where the um interviewer asks her when are you ever going to bring white people as the focus of your work and she basically blasts that question even as just offensively racist Right. With a set of assumptions that, of course, you're going to center whiteness. Of course, white people need to be brought into your story in ways that are not asked of white people. White people are not asked, when are you going to consider <laughs> black people's lives and center black people's lives? Um, so I love Toni Morrison. <laughs> I love everything about her. I love her fire. I love her energy. And I love her analysis. And we've lost a great, but her words are still with us. So. Yeah. I quoted her this week um, when we, we had a, a orientation for all of our new student teachers, mm -hmm. and it was a quote about um, something like, and I'm going to probably butcher it because I don't have it in front of me, you are all really well prepared for the things that we're sending you out to do, mm -hmm. and as someone who has power, it's your job to empower, right, right? and create these, essentially the way I interpret it is create these liberatory practices and mm -hmm. opportunities for folks, and I can't think of a better way to one honor kind of her vision and what she did for liberation, mm -hmm. right? But also by thinking about that in the context of teaching and education. And so that was really, um, and to look around the room and see all the white students, because <laughs> that's what we have. Uh, one, not recognize the name Toni Morrison oh, was wow. disheartening to me right. a little bit. And so, but they resonated with the statement in the sentiment, mm -hmm. which I thought was uplifting, but still it was this interesting piece. But yeah. When did you first um, were exposed to? Um, Toni Morrison, I remember when Beloved came out and they had the Oprah Book Club about yeah. it. I actually never read that book because at the time the story seemed so incredibly painful and so incredibly emotional that psychically I had never been able to go to that story, Beloved, mm -hmm. um, because hearing what the story is about, I'm like, oh, I think it's going to rip my heart out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm not ready for that. Um, but that's the first time I heard buzz about her name. And then we read The Bluest Eye when I was in college. I was in African-American lit class. We read The Bluest Eye, and I remember like thinking, this is it. Yeah. Dead on about these analyses of what beauty is, who's, who's lovable, who's not, um, and just kind of feeling it again visceral, viscerally. <laughs> yeah, that was my first introduction was that okay. book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't remember the details of it. I just remember the experience of how my body felt reading it and being kind of awakened to just kind of this very sharp, very clear, very to the point analysis of you know colorism and, and beauty and, and all the kind of things that go along with that. Um, so she's just a powerful writer. Yeah. Right? People say she's a hard writer. She's tough. Like when you read her work, sometimes she's gonna she's gonna like bang your mind. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what good writing is. That's exactly I mean, it. Yeah. 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 So. Um, I love her, and I love that quote that you shared, like, you know, when she says, when you get these jobs, you have to make sure that you're opening doors, and I think that's perfect for the conversation that we're going to have today, because we're talking about what is, it, what does it mean to be racist, or what does right. it mean to be, in my case, asking us to think about anti-racism, and for Toni Morrison, it's like, you know, you have to have, you have to actively challenge the system, you have to actively work against the things that you're seeing in, right. in the sphere around you. And for her, it was to actively make this choice that she's going to censure blackness, for example, in her writing. And just kind of thinking about it, even for me as a scholar, you know, in academic spaces, what am I doing to actively 
centered voices and experiences of people who haven't been seen. And yeah. I just love that <laughs> yeah. action-oriented um, kind of perspective that she takes. You know, we were in a um, discussion and I was bringing up um, Dr. D.L. Stewart's work. Hmm. Um, there was a, a an opinion, I want to say it was an opinion piece in highred.com. Mm-hmm. Inside Higher Ed, that's what it was, about this narrative change between diversity and inclusion Mm. versus equity and justice, right? right? And Dr. Stewart really did a good job of kind of framing this in a conversation about when we center the experiences and lives of folks that have been placed perpetually on the fringes and the margins, the the marginalized and minoritized individuals, that's when we're moving to this, right? And there's been a lot of other work about it. Um, uh, And then... In kind of flipping the language a little bit, what does equity and justice? Who are we? Who is not involved mm-hmm. in the space? Who's not involved in the conversation? Right. That's where the focus is, right? Exactly. And we were having this discussion in a, a larger meeting of educators, and the conversation moved to, "Well, I don't think we can ever get there, so we shouldn't even think about it." Oh. And I was like, "It was disheartened, right?" Yeah. So we're in this position where. Um, historically, white institutions have forever been built to center mm-hmm. the lives of white folks, right. white men in particular, mm-hmm. white Christian men, mm-hmm. if you want to get specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are folks in the room that still, even though they recognize the need to do this, right. the lift is so, in their mind, difficult. That's exactly it. It just stops the conversation. Absolutely. And it's odd because I had the exact same conversation about a month ago with another colleague who I consider an ally who said almost the same thing word for word. Like, this is so impossible to change the state of affairs. It's, it's entrenched in every way. And so, you know, we, we have to resign ourselves that we're not going to change it, which kind of means that we kind of go back to our bubble. Yeah. And we don't, you know, we find things that make us happy. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's easy for some people to go back to that bubble, but for the rest of us, sometimes just walking down the hallway, these things present themselves to us, right? You know, when I see that I'm the only black person in the entire hallway <laughs> of a sea of people, or, you know, I'm teaching a class and no one no one in the class looks like me. And, and, and I can't retreat to that bubble, right? And yeah. so that need to be active and to, like, be brave, you know, and I think that's something that Toni Morrison, she is fierce, <laughs> right? right? Fiercely brave about... You know, saying I'm make I'm taking this stance, and I'm going to do this, and I don't really care <laughs> what you people think or say or demand of me. I'm going to set my mind that this is a vision I have, and I'm going to create it. Yeah, and I can't think of a better way to honor her legacy than to continually try to show up and be present and mm-hmm. to actively challenge and, you know. But then you have that in this. I'm assuming your colleague was white when they mm-hmm. said that, right? So, <laughs> in their mind, what they're losing is that status. They're losing that privilege. They're losing that immunity. Mm-hmm. of being safe, of being neutral, right. because there's safety in that neutrality. Right. And so um, there's a lot to lose, figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, everything to gain by just not doing anything. That's right. right? That's and right. so I think that's why it's hard. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And so, um, and yeah, it, I, th- I think that's a great way to honor mm-hmm. that. Um, you, you brought up before we, before we jumped on the, her um, article, Making mm. America White Again in yes. 2016, um, was posted November 14th, so this is written literally right after the mm-hmm. election of um, uh, our current president. Right. <laughs> the one who shall not be named, yeah. 45. <laughs> the elephant in the room. Yes. Yeah, um, and I hadn't read this yet, I don't believe. Um, I think I had seen it at one point, but I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know why I hadn't read it, because this was right in the middle of when I was writing mm. my literature review, the first, my first of many edits of my literature <laughs> review, and this would have been something I think would have been really helpful, yeah. the additional chapter. So what was your reaction when you saw this you know, particular article? It was in The New Yorker? Mm-hmm, yeah. In The New Yorker, and you know, I have this quote here, that, uh, this idea that um, getting rid of white privilege is very scary, yeah. right? And that there is this incredible terror, and Ibrahim Kidney and, and other people say this, that um, equity or equality can feel like oppression when you've lived your life in privilege because it feels like there's a sense of loss or loss of status. And she goes through in a very detailed way the ways that this fear translates into these actions that are very depraved and very um, coward cowardly, right? You know, you would shoot someone in the back who's running away or you would be okay with, you know, people that kids, black kids at pool parties getting their heads, you know, mashed into the ground and being handcuffed 
or you know all the kinds of violence that's happened to black and brown people you know and and even um has have been happening but are kind of more um visible because of social right. media um, but we're okay with this stuff yeah. because we're responding to this this supposed or sensed shift in power dynamics and she doesn't say it but i think what's happening is that white people are fearing that if they become a minorities we would treat them the way that they've treated us right right like to be minority means to not have power it means not to have a, a, a ability to participate with equal footing in society it means that you're going to lose you know economic <laughs> benefits you're going to be um suffering yeah and so that's what i think is at the core of this fear it's like it's like assuming that the world is just as evil as your community has been right to the to the world right you know in, in my um in my research and uh i one of my participants gloria mm-hmm. um that's her pseudonym mm-hmm. of course uh talked about this mm-hmm. so uh she was really kind of having this moment of free thinking where she was just kind of talking at uh, on length and that's what I love about qualitative studies mm-hmm. is like she was just letting it all flow yeah. we'll talk about Gloria at another episode in depth because there was an interesting thing that happened that we'll unpack together but um, one of the things that she brought up is this sense of fear mm-hmm. of, of what's going to happen to me and that's really what her when she gets feels her fragility right. it was around this sense of fear of loss of power right. of status of and not even just of like what is going to happen to me by now the the, the dominant group, mm-hmm. but really what what am I going to be able to do? And so for her, the question I had was, what does that then mean for how you support folks that are right. minoritized That's and right. oppressed? And how do you work to make them provide access or provide support or remove or eliminate barriers and her response was like nothing exactly and that's back to that inaction yeah because they're in that fear zone right and it's so odd because when we think about like after reconstruction when we think about when african americans are fighting for civil rights the rights that we're fighting for white people actually benefit the most from them right whether it's um, affirmative action white women getting places um, in institutions that they were denied access to, or um, social safety nets, like having food stamps or having you know support for housing. You know, we know that white people are are using those things more because of their in terms of large numbers as a larger right. population. If it, it seems that when we fight for these things, white people are the first ones to say, "Well, um, why should I finance those things that are for other people?" Right. without realizing that the very things that we're fighting for are things that are going to make our entire society stable and healthy. And so that if we have a demographic shift, it won't really matter because we've got the, the safety nets and the supports that ensure that you have equal access, you have the kind of you know nutrition and stability that you need to thrive. And yet there's something in the thought process that disconnects these people who have these fears from the reality that if we fought this together, if we fought for equality it would actually benefit all of us in the long run. So that demographic shifts won't really matter if we have a strong, robust um, judicial system or um, political system or education system <laughs> or you know social safety net. Um, and I, I'm, I think my mind is always boggled by what is it that causes that disconnect? And Ibrahim um, Kendi talks about it when he says that you know there's this kind of fracturing of the working class, for example, that white working class people can't see their um, their futures and lives connected to black and brown working class people, when in actuality we're all getting oppressed by the same right. political and economic. And they see system. it as competition in a sense, right? Because one capitalism and, and kind of mm-hmm. pits everyone against each other. Exactly. But really, when you're talking about scarcity of jobs, scarcity yeah. of resources for, you know, you have not to use a Bernie Sanders line because he's a whole other thing, but <laughs> when you have 99% of the population fighting over 1% of the wealth, right. or something like that. Mm-hmm that 1% gets right. pulled in many directions. Exactly. And so I think that that creates some competition. It's okay. interesting that you bring up the the rights piece too, and, and I don't know if we're ready to transition to our second mini topic yet, mm-hmm. but with, uh, with all the mass, the tragic mass shootings, mm-hmm. the Second Amendment, mm-hmm. and who benefits the most from declaring the Second Amendment the way it is. Because right. I can't imagine a white person walking down the street with a concealed weapon is treated the same as a black or brown person walking oh, yeah. down the street with a concealed weapon. Exactly. We right. know that for sure. I mean, Philando Castile, I think, is a perfect case of that. You right. know, had I think he had a permit to carry his yeah. gun. He announced it to the officer and was shot immediately. Right. Right. And it's like, that's, for me, the most clear example of how that's right. a double standard. Right. Or 
where you have a white gunman in a building or a, a space that is taken out alive, mm-hmm. whereas you have a kid with a toy handgun on the street who's right. shot, right? Yeah. And so, like, that's the... And you already know that this one person has that's right. committed multiple homicides. Exactly. Right, whereas a child... Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's... It, yeah. And then, you know, and, and so what I was looking at and, and what was interesting to me about this whole thing, um, you know, it, it's tragic in of itself, but the, the way it's been, one, again, it's now no longer really in the conversation today. I mean, there's still mm-hmm. some of it, but it got spun back to the mental health and who right. is making the individualized arguments. So I started kind of digging around into this and I was looking at, okay, so it seems like this is back in the powers of the, the NRA, the larger voice of gun, mm-hmm. gun Lack, uh, anti-gun control is, I guess, mm-hmm. the way to phrase that. And what is the rhetoric? And one of the things I saw that was really fascinating as an argument against gun control was, and it was a very liberal conservative piece, and this person was saying he was a white, middle-class, early 40s, conservative Christian man mm-hmm. who tends to be who I see as the face of mm-hmm. this um, anti-gun control movement. Mm-hmm. Um and his statement was, you claim that the president is a, tyr- a, a, a Hitler-esque. You claim that there are, and it's all claim, you claim that there are um, camps holding children, and yet children not, children uh, in cages, and now you want to get rid of your ability to alleviate all of that, as if violence was the way to do that through right. guns. It's this very like archaic mind frame of, well, all we need to do is uprise against the government and everything will right. change. And that's a really odd way to think about it in Mm -hmm. 2019 and I think about who that benefits like you had and we had organizations that were active and um, more so uh, prone to at least standing up for themselves um, with the Black Panthers Mm -hmm. right so within range of but they were considered a terrorist organization for the lack of better words but they were your well-regulated militia that's right were they not that's right and they were more regulated than the militia you have in the backwoods of Heartland Michigan that's right um, that's walking, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, but that organization is often considered in, in mainstream white culture right. as negative. Exactly, exactly. Because it kind of reveals that these rights that we're talking about really are not for black people. It's, right. They're rights that are meant to maintain a white majority, a white political majority. And so for me, just experiencing the world, it feels like as our political apparatus becomes more diverse, the the white conservative Christian man, which becomes it's a really interesting intersection of yeah. identities, right? Yeah. But like the feeling that we're being marginalized. My students say this stuff: we're being marginalized. We're the most discriminated against, and then that kind of coincides with the needing to arm themselves against right. this political machine that no longer is visibly upholding whiteness in the way that they're used to, right? right. Because I think it's a weird translation of what America is and what America political systems are supposed to do right and, and I think that gets back to Tony Morrison's point mm-hmm. of what and I don't know if because again I didn't read the I haven't read, read the article yet um, but the point of what we did with that election is we further cemented the making America white again That's right? right and so instead of having uh, a black or african-american president mm-hmm. who was moving towards in some regard progress of I won't even use the word equity or mm-hmm. equality to a right. certain regard, yeah. right um, which was taking away the mind frame of what America was. Exactly. And that's what the whole Make America Great Again thing yeah. was, right? It's really, yeah. And so now you have this whole Make America White Again, which is a comfort place exactly. for white supremacy, white terrorism. Exactly. Um, and that t- it's tied with the idea that, you know, as we're coming, coming off of this um, white terrorism, which is basically what's been happening, white domestic terrorism with these, with these mass shootings, although the FBI knows that these shootings have been committed by white men, their focus is not on those people, but it's on black identity extremists. Right. And that's Black Lives Matter. They're, they're not people who are saying we want to be gun trained and we want to build a militia. They're saying we want to, like, you know, dismantle prisons and we want to argue for equity for our people. And yet those are the most terrifying group and the, and the biggest target on behalf of the FBI in today's um, surveillance state. Right? right. And it's an odd situation. I mean, not odd, we know that this is a threat to white supremacy, which is why it's the target, but given the visible evidence <laughs> yeah. of who's doing the shooting and how access to guns and, and deregulation of um, this kind of um, gun industry creates all this violence, and yet we, we don't even have a, 
agency that's focusing on that in a serious way. And I was reading the other day that Donald Trump is actually dismantling some of these um, yeah. things that are helping us target and making sure that people who, if they do have mental health issues or if they are, you know, known to be unstable or have abused women in the past, for example, that they don't have access to weapons of mass destruction. Right. <laughs> right. So this, yeah, I think you're right. This connection of all of this to white supremacy, thinking about what America is. America is funda fundamentally a white supremacist state from its inception. Right. And although we have these policies that say equality and justice and freedom, it really, the subtext is it's for white people. Right. <laughs> and, and to get back to your earlier point, too, of like this, if white folks, particularly white working class folks, would realize that we, if we worked together, mm -hmm. And, and had some sort of band on equality, right. at the very least, then we would make more progress. But I think, right. you know, Derek Bell's work talks about the concept of interest convergence, right? Mm -hmm. So there's got, in order for those in dominant frames, in this case white folks, to move, they still need to have the plus one advantage, mm -hmm. right? And so it's right. not a neutral gain-gain right. piece. Right. It's always, I'll give this little bit, right. but in return, I get this, exactly. right? So it, on an institutional level, the way I can frame that for folks that aren't familiar with the word, the, the terminology, we use it in higher ed and, and when, we, when we want to diversify our faculty. Right. So we will gain a faculty member of color, then we can promote that faculty member of color and, and, and extrapolate all of the, and basically use that human being right. for not just their talents and skills as a scholar, but for all the things that they, they we believe they represent. Exactly. They and, will do and the benefit to us is, is three times greater than what it is for that individual, exactly. right? So it's like there's this, when we diversify our workforce, that's what happens. It's, it's mm -hmm. always done in the mind frame of what's, what's the going to be. And yeah. not to go too much off a tangent, I was in a conversation the other day, and it was a little disheartening because we do this a lot, again, and, and it was we do this work in X space. Mm -hmm. We've been putting X amount of dollars in five years into right. this particular thing. What has been the return on investment for us, mm -hmm. right? And so that's how it's always viewed from yeah. a capitalistic exactly. frame. And, and when you think about that in the context of racial justice, that's what happens. Is if there's not a benefit for the person in power, that's right. a return on investment, they're going to cut their ties and run. Right. Now I'm going to make it even more messy. Oh, good. Because I was good. giving a call. I was waiting. It took us 20 we, minutes we to get messy. We're going to make it messy. I read a really great article on Facebook that someone posted that says, if you have an institution that has a lot of diversity, but none of those people actually have their hands on the levers of power, that they're not given free reign to control power in your institution, you may think you have diversity, but really what you have is a plantation. You literally mm. have a plantation. And it hit me... It made my whole body like tingle because it was like, that's it. That's the language I need to explain the situation that I'm in. Yeah. That here I am in this space, and now we can say well, we have a diverse department, or we have a diverse college, or we have diverse faculty, and yet I'm being used. And when I encounter spaces where people like me say, we need X, Y, Z, we need you to act in this way, we need you to do things that we are telling you is for the benefit and for our survival in this place, if it's like you said, if there's no return for them, right? Yeah. Or if there's a threat that they won't be able to control the outcome and the final decisions, no, we're not going to do that. But we'll do this little thing over here to make it look like we're, we're contributing to you. And so um, I used to really get mad because I had a colleague who would say, you know, how is life on the plantation at the university? Right. <laughs> I would get pissed off. I don't know plantation. Stop telling me that. And it was like, no, that's, that's yeah. what this is, you know? And if the, the whole capitalist framework that you're talking about, exactly that who gets yep. the benefit it's not me it's not my people I mean I got a job I got a paycheck but does it is it really a benefit um, I, uh, another article that I came across talked about um, what does it mean for a black woman in the academy to become a full professor and it, and it may seem like a success but in this plantation model it's not a success because yeah. I'm still having this exposure to the pains and the sufferings of living in a racist work environment and you're extracting <laughs> energy out of my body to make your institution look good. And so I'm glad you brought that up because it's exactly the way that these diversity and, and even sometimes equity discussions go. They go yeah. towards putting bodies in slots but not really turning over power, not really listening to those people and continuing to make those people do the work. And that was a suggestion of one of my good allies that, hey, Erica, you hate how things are going. Why don't you become a leader? We'll make you provost or something. We'll make you chair. And then you can solve the problem. And I'm like, you want to you give me a promotion in, in the hierarchy. You want me to be right. the head uh, a slave, 
right? Like, that's not the way I want to go. So. Yeah, and it, and it puts all the all the effort and work on one individual, right. and, you know, instead of having multiple folks That's of color, for example, right. in leadership positions That's throughout right. the campus. Right. Instead, you just, you know, yep. tokenize one right. and then expect all of the work to happen. Exactly. It's just like when we hire, um, I'm working with a friend of mine who's doing her research on why, um, and the, the terminology is problematic, chief diversity officers, mm-hmm. which is problematic in itself mm-hmm. at universities um, have systemic barriers mm-hmm. and it's often because all of that work then falls on them and and okay. most of the chief diversity officers throughout the country are folks of color mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so now you're putting all of the racial and equity issues on that person That's you're right. putting all of the LGBTQ issues right. and gender identity issues and and accessibility because it all falls under that mm-hmm. piece although most of it's about race yeah. under that person and then when it fails it's on them. it's them not it's the them. system that they've right. been involved in. and it's exactly. just um but, and that's the thing right and mm-hmm. so kind of i guess this is somewhat transitioning as we move but like that's where we live we live in this mm-hmm. individualized frame without right. looking at the systems that exist and that's so right. the last quick thing that I, I think we we i feel like we have to talk about is that joe biden stuff right. right so the democrats uh, continue to have whiteness problems <laughs> Continue, um, I mean, and, and the current front runner in the democratic party is you know has a problematic past with race yeah. has then claimed in a debate i've got a best friend that's black so i'm good and that's his sense of credibility and then you know whether it was a slip of the tongue or not basically said you know poor kids are just as good as white, white kids, kids. And we're just as smart or bright. I think it was bright was the word he used. And and it's not, it like, there's two parts of it. One, it's his mentality, right? He he is, this is who he is. Right. Right? He is an indicative, um, I think we mentioned it in the last conversation. Trump is the extreme version of whiteness. Right. Joe Biden is the palatable version, exactly. palatable version of whiteness. And that's true for the, right? all of our, the political parties, the major parties, right. that's exactly what it is. It's a continuum of how explicit is your supportness, supporting of whiteness and white supremacy. Right, and I think this is the perfect transition for our conversation, a big conversation, right? That, exactly. That, that spectrum exactly. of, am I a racist? Right. <laughs> Where do I fall on my racist spectrum? Exactly, Right. exactly. And yeah. he would say he falls on the light end, Right. but for someone like me watching it, that's not good enough, no. of course, because it's, it's, it's for me, typically the most dangerous people in my world are the Joe Bidens. They are the white liberals who believe that they're on my side, right. who don't believe that they're racist, and then uphold a whole lot of racist, painful policies. And I see that every day at this university right. where, you know, for example, we have a student group, a black student group, that wanted to have um, a dance. But we have a dance, we have a dance policy that says if you, if you want to have a dance, there has to be a police presence. And they have to search your bags. Everyone coming in has to have their bag searched by the police. And we're like, okay, but who, who are the ones that want to have dances? It tends to be the black groups. And when we have these gatherings, there's things that they're not allowed to do. They can't twirl canes, right? And the groups on our campus, the fraternities on our campus who twirl canes, those yeah. are black groups. Right. But when you talk to the, the administrators and say, this policy is racist. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't feel racist. It doesn't seem racist. It is racist and should not be. Well, it's really about safety and blah, 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 blah. And, and that's coming from a white liberal person who believes himself to be on the side of justice. Right. And the fact that you have to argue that. But they can hide behind a policy. They can hide behind a policy and hide behind, oh, this is for safety. This is not racism. But it's racist. <laughs> right? Because it targets us. And it constrains us, and it makes us criminals on our own campus, just because we want to dance. We're going to take a quick break. We'll return back to our conversation in a moment. All right, so we wanted to share some information about an event coming up on Thursday, August 22nd at 6 p.m., I have the pleasure of interviewing Samaj Brown, a local performer, artist, poet, um, and we're going to have a really great conversation about how she uses language, how she integrates language into her writing and into her performance. That will be um, at Mott Warsh Gallery on um, Saginaw Street in downtown Flint, so please join us if you have time. And now back to our discussion. After our last 
conversation with Dr. P, mm-hmm. uh, Eric and I were talking about, we're thinking about what our next topic would be, our next mm-hmm. major topic, and I kept seeing this word, and, and we see it all the time, and in the work that we, I do, and I'm sure in your research too, we see the word racist come mm-hmm. up a lot. And I started thinking about it, and, and the way it's being used, the context in which it's being used, the way I see people understanding it, mm-hmm. when I call someone a racist, the reaction I get, and I, and I thought to myself, I think we need to have some dialogue about this. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I might agree on some things and might mm-hmm. even disagree on some things, but I think part of my want to have this conversation, which I think will end up being a, a two-part piece of this, this podcast, is really to build some common understanding so we can really articulate what it is. Because I think the term or the label racist mm-hmm. has been a panacea of multitude of things, mm-hmm. right? You have the, the sociological terminology which I kind of subscribe to which is if you are both receiver of the privilege Mm -hmm. and you are doing something that is perpetuating that then you are in fact racist Mm -hmm. so in the in the statement of if you're racist or not I kind of come from the perspective as a white person Mm -hmm. white folks are in in that framework Mm -hmm. racist now then that gets back to the the spectrum of how racist are you right right right? Um, but then you have the president of the United States coming out and calling uh, Congressman Cummings a racist, right. which makes no sense. Doesn't make any sense, right? None. But it's being used in multiple ways. So I right. felt like we needed to have some dialogue. So, uh, what are your thoughts as we get I into so the beginning much. of this? Goodness gracious! Like I have a bigger set of thoughts at the end, we'll come to at the end. But I think in terms of just kind of working through this, like this, this knee-jerk reaction to label black people who may say something that you don't like or who are from a different political stance as racist. We've seen that conversation that says it's, it's impossible right. in the context, in the historical context of the United States of America for black people to be racist in the way that white people are imagining. Because every when we talk about race as the original sin of this country, like almost every institutional structure, educational structure, economic structure is built to support whiteness. And so for Elijah Cumming to be labeled as racist because he doesn't, in your mind, agree with you, <laughs> right. that is not an active, whatever Elijah Cummings is doing is not an active attempt to build black supremacy and use institutional structures to lock up and police and take away the wealth and extract the wealth from the bodies of white people. That is not what's happening, (laughs) right? And so if we can be very clear about when we say something is racist in the way that you said, that racism is about this big-ass system (laughs) that is destructive and that has power and sway even when I'm asleep (laughs) <laughs> the, the system is working. It's, yes. it's not those encounters that you have with a person of a different race who maybe you feel like, oh, well, they didn't, you know, I'm, not, I'm disgruntled about this this individual encounter I've right. had with someone. It, that's not it. <laughs> it's not and, ever going to be it. Yeah, and there's, you know, the, the problematization of the word or the phrase reverse racism. Right. That's what it used to be, for what white folks right. would use as the defense. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is reverse racism. I, this is, I deserve that job right. or whatever it was. And now it's, 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 progressed yeah. or regressed to oh I can just label it just as label racist I can racist. just say it's racist like I don't like it right. it's racist exactly. you know and and I saw it happen um, you know I for some reason I know social media is not a pulse of the general it's a pulse of the 20% on both sides mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. is kind of how I view that and the Russian bots mm-hmm. yeah right? the bots are there <laughs> The but, there. but these are real humans that are that I know yeah. that are, are having these these conversations or statements of mm-hmm. like of using the word racist and they will um, humorize it. Mm -hmm. And so it takes away the power of what it is. And so as you and I were talking when we were kind of going through the framework today, one of the things that I I shared is, and and this is where I think it's interesting, is that the label, when it was labeled before, this is racist or Mm -hmm. that person was racist or they did something that was racist, it took a while. I mean, obviously, white people have the mm-hmm. Teflon ability of yeah. being able to bounce back because we're white folks and it's built for That's us. Right. But it takes us some time to go away and be out of the mind frame of, of life for a little right. bit, and then we can reemerge. Right. But at least there was that point of yeah. acknowledging that this was a really shitty, harmful thing that this person right. did. Right. Now, it's gone. Right. Well, I mean, that... that that window of time where we had that response really didn't exist very long anyway. No, it didn't. You're right. It was like a blip (laughs) in the whole history. And so for those of us watching, you know, especially my grandmother's generation where it was very clear you could do really racist stuff and no one ever hit you. And then the, maybe what, the 80s and 70s through the 80s, maybe you might have gotten hit. In the 90s, I think too. Maybe the 90s even. And then it kind of, we kind of went back. Right. We, We already knew. Yeah. You know, that even that 
wasn't going to be it, right? right? This kind of um, performance of public, public performance of shame that doesn't ever disturb the underlying system. No. Um, like I think about those kids on the mall in D.C. and was it in January? They were um, yeah. They were from um, Covington, Kentucky, and they were harassing that Native American protester or performer. I don't know what, if he was there for a protest or not. Um, and the the media machine that came to resuscitate their image, right? He could right. come on TV and and have his like you know collar popped and this kind of very angelic appearance. And he hired a PR group. PR that group. Him. Yeah. You know, and all those machinery, that, all that machinery that goes to, to polish up a person's image when they are even a hint of being labeled racist, right? Um, just speaks to me like, okay, this is we we knew we knew this story was right. going to end that way because that's how racism, real racism, right. <laughs> works. The system, the system right. works in our country. And as that was happening, people were saying, well, who's the person that's going to come and resuscitate Mike Brown's image? Right. You know, this kid shot in the street and labeled this kind of brutal beast. Right. Or Trayvon and, Martin. And Trayvon Martin, right. right? Like, there's no machinery that's going to ever come and work on their behalf in the way that it works for white people. So to label a black person, a Latino person, anyone who's not white as racist in this economic and historical situation, it's not accurate yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I used to, when I used to present to groups, I used to, because I, I knew the term, the term is loaded, and particularly, you know, I do a lot of work with white folks. And so to kind of mitigate their fragility around the word mm-hmm. I would own it first so mm-hmm. I would come out and I'd be like hi my name's Tom I'm a recovering racist mm-hmm. I'm happy to be here today I think I did it with your class mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. and then I came mm-hmm. and spoke to and it's to kind of one to talk to be able to really um, dissect what it means right. and figure out for each and the person what it means but also to have them start thinking away from that individual frame mm-hmm. right uh, because I think on a level as you said this country has been built right on racial inequity. It's right. been built on um, horrific acts of intolerance and mm-hmm. um, racial injustice and racism. Mm-hmm. And we all participate. That's right. We all participate at some level. That's right. There are those of us that benefit mm-hmm. from that participation and then those that don't benefit but still participate because... Right either survival or colonization yeah. or you don't know right mm-hmm. all these things we're given that we're given a false sense of incentives like if you participate in the system right we'll give you a benefit right you'll never crack the ceiling right. but you'll you'll get up to it right. maybe right mm-hmm. and and so i think i think that that's the thing that i i come back to on this is that we all participate so in some level white folks are racist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but what does that even mean right right and when we start to dig into that and and so i think I don't know. That's kind of where I land on this, yeah. and, and kind of, but it's hard to have that conversation in a in a one hundred and forty character tweet or in a, a heated mm-hmm. discussion. And so, I was hoping that you and I could kind of have some of that dialogue. And I don't know where you wanted to go with this today, but I, I was thinking, um, you know, that's where we would. I, I mean, I think it's a good dialogue for us to have. I also want to blow up that conversation altogether. Yeah, let's blow it up. Let's blow it up because white people, I think, get caught up in being labeled not racist. I'm not racist. I'm not this. I'm not that. But if, as you say, that racism, well, let's put it this way, white supremacy is embedded in almost every layer of our society. Right. And if that's the case, my question is not, are you racist? My question is, are you anti-racist? And this is something Abraham X. Kendi talks about, like that anti-racism is actually the thing that we want to focus on. Like, not not this passive ability to label myself as not part of that terrible, horrible right. group of people who are doing visibly negative things, like having a KKK hood on or terrorizing, you know, kids with torches or whatever. Um, but by my passive acceptance of the system, right. you know, my benefiting from it, and then in some ways subtly perpetuating it. So I'm a linguist. And white supremacy manifests for me through the kind of language that we promote. Okay, what does professional language sound like? It's usually white, middle-class right. English. And if you have an accent or you speak with a dialect that's marking you as other from a certain ethnicity or a certain class background, you're not going to be promoted. And people will, people will say, well, you know, you can't participate in this arena because you don't have the white, valuable language that we all have agreed on is the way you're supposed to be. So... Just thinking about it, on even on that level, right? Like your hiring practices, your impressions of people right. when they speak to you. Just thinking about how are you internalizing white supremacy? Yes. And if you really are 
caring about you know whether or not you're a racist, then if we follow Abraham X. Kendi's approach, you got to be anti-racist. <laughs> you got to you got to be aware of those things and then stop doing those things, right? right? And and that's going to be my question. I don't really care if you label yourself racist or not. I want to know what are you doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I think that's a really good point too, right. and and it, it gets at kind of that that where we left off with talking about Toni Morrison about mm-hmm. what are you doing that that's active right. that active work because. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I, I kind of have pushed upon in my writing and in the way that I talk with students about race and racial racial justice is, at the end of the day, it's if you are not active, That's if right. you are neutral That's on right. that moving train, you are still moving You're with moving it. You're moving with it. Right? And so the, the, to borrow right from Howard's Inn, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So... So if, if, that, if that's the case, then, then yeah, you fall in that category. And I think mm-hmm. that there is this want to be, you know, I, I think white folks want to be neutral. That's in right. life in general. Right. Don't talk to me about politics. Right. Don't talk to me about religion. Those are my personal individual exactly. things. Because we've been allowed to operate on this individual level for so right. long um, without having to see that connection to the, the bigger system and structure. Exactly. Yeah. And then that uneasiness of having to connect to that bigger system or structure is challenging yeah. um, and, and hard. But I think reversing it and thinking about it from an anti-racist perspective is really mm-hmm. interesting too. Exactly. Yeah. How does that exactly. work when you have that conversation with folks? Um... Actually, I hadn't been having that conversation because I've been so caught up in the am I a racist, am I not a racist discussion. Yeah. And I'm finding that, you know, we keep hitting a wall with that discussion because I'm left with people who are adamantly and uh, not racist who are doing racist ass shit all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, you told me you're not racist and yet here's, here's the policy we just talked about that's racist and you're defending it. Right. Right. And so that, that's the place we keep coming back to. And I think this is a shift for me, even in my teaching yeah. um, and talking and thinking. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to try it out. And what's let's try it out in that class. We're allegedly co-working yes. on presenting in, in October. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, bring it to them and say, what are you doing to challenge racism? Not like, you know, this kind of static I am or I am not. Right. No, no, no. There's action. This is not a I was posting on my Facebook. This is not a. Um, you know, you can't be on the sidelines. Right. You, know? <laughs> you can't observe this thing. You gotta like actively work, um, and that's true of everyone in the room. And that this is something that's important for all of us to recognize that it is the primary work of white people, right? right. Because I think they are the primary beneficiaries and the primary upholders of systems of white supremacy. Yep. But white supremacy has gone global. Like understandings of whiteness as the norm, whiteness as the way to be. They've been internalized by all of us. Right. And so me as a black woman, again, when we talk about, okay, we got to have diverse workplaces. So you put someone who looks like me in a leadership position, and I am the chief, I am the chief proponent, proponent of white supremacist ideas, because I think right. that's how you're supposed to be in these spaces. Right. Right. You know, what's a professional worker look like? Right. So when I started on the job market, um, I, I straightened my hair, because it was like, okay, this is what I have to do to look professional. professional. Right. And I did that for the first interview, and everyone was like, oh, you look so professional. I was like, wait a minute. This is bullshit. So by the, by the last interview, I had cut that, I had unstraightened it and gone back to an afro, and I felt much better <laughs> about right. my life. But, you know, even thinking about even people in my own community and how they will also perpetuate these ways of thinking about how you move through the world that are ultimately white supremacist ways of thinking. Right. And so all of us have to be anti-racist. Um, right. Even people of color, we have to be anti-racist in our work. Right. And I think I think about that, too, of what that means then, uh, even just on the, the level of professional, what that, what that looks like, right. of how do you then decenter the whiteness value of what right. it meant to be professional right. and center um, blackness or center other mm-hmm. cultural norms, yeah, right, exactly. in that in that vein of professionalism mm-hmm. to, to remove that so that the, the burden is not on you as the mm-hmm. candidate to, to say, oh, this is okay for me to right. accept. It's, it's in that system. Because we also, you know, one of the things that came up, I was doing a panel discussion, and I wish you were there. I, I don't think you were. And the conversation came up about um, written language, right? Mm-hmm. So you and I have discussed this mm-hmm. pretty extensively. Right. And the question was to the three of us, and I think we all failed at answering it, mm. Um, I kind of was like, well, I think we need to do better about finding ways to um, break the system down of what is acceptable and unacceptable mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of language. And, but there was someone else that was like, well, we need to teach mm-hmm. this because they have to be able to code switch mm-hmm. and, and right. be able to write to get into the system. But right. if the, the person gets into the system and then just perpetuates that to begin with, mm-hmm. then while representation is important, right. you haven't deconstructed anything right. or you haven't um, broken that apart at yeah. all, right? 
And for me, I approach it like we have to give critical consciousness, right? Because oftentimes what happens, so for black and brown kids, we're taught, you have to write this way, and this right. is the only way you can write in standard English. Yep. And if you don't write in standard English, you're going to fail, which is an absolute lie, first of all. There yes. are people of color, people who have been writing in language that is not the standard, and yet it's powerful. And I have a, a colleague, Bonnie Williams, who uses African verbal tradition in her, in her writing, and she teaches that as part of her freshman writing classes. And the kids, when they're doing it, they're like, I didn't know I could write in a way that connects me with my community, first right. of all. Like, that's not even on the table in most, school, in most schools. But I, there's another scholar, Lisa Delpit, who says that, yeah, we're trying to dismantle the system, and we're also trying to survive the system. So give me the toolkit so I can at least make the choice. So I can, I'm capable of learning another language. Right? Yeah. So if I'm going to learn French, I'm capable of learning French. <laughs> and I'm going to go and I'm going to take that lesson in that language and I'm going to learn how to read and write in French and also maintain my English. Right. But someone has to believe that I can even learn French to teach me that language. What happens in our school system is, is that teachers will look at black kids who speak a different language or write a different language and assume that they're, they're, they're too stupid to even learn. Right. With it's that deficit or It's a deficit person. mindset. Yeah. I'm not even going to bother to teach it to them because they're too dumb to get to know it. Rather than recognizing that, no, they have a beautiful, powerful language that must be nurtured and they must be taught that you can be as just as expressive and creative in this language and you can learn other languages. And I think that's what's always missing from the conversation. Um, and that those kids are taught, you have to figure out when you want to make the choice, if ever. There's a lot of black writers now who are coming out, this next generation of millennials who are saying, I will not write in standard English. Yeah. I'm no longer writing in standard English because fuck that. <laughs> it's a colonial system. I'm not participating in that. I'm not choosing that. And it's a conscious political choice that they're making to say that they're resisting that system. And I say, go for it. Right. There are other people who say, I want to learn both. Because it's, it's access to language right. of all kinds, and I can be fluid in it. Um, and then they can be critical of, okay, what kind of system do they want to create and do they want to destroy? But most schooling doesn't even offer that window yeah. of, like, the possibility of thinking about it. And if you frame it, and so I like that too, because that gets it gets to the decentering of the whiteness and centering mm -hmm. the kind of more open mm -hmm. experience, because you really think about it as multilingual, right? Rather than proper and improper. That's right. right? That's right. And so, um, kind of tangentially related, mm -hmm. we have this book at home that we read to our kids, mm -hmm. and we're very cognizant of. In the book, it's called Opposites. Mm -hmm. So it sets up these dualities, mm -hmm. right, which mm -hmm. are is problematic in a, in a sense, but we, we live in a very dualistic mm -hmm. frame mm -hmm. in our conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm racist. I'm not racist. Right, right, I'm right. right. I'm wrong. Right. Correct. Incorrect. Yeah. Right. And so I think of it in that way. And there's this one piece where there's an animal that has a phone up to its ear and then there's an animal that has a phone on its head and one is <laughs> says right and one that mm -hmm. says wrong. And even for my daughter who's three and my son who is one, we don't, we try not to use that, mm -hmm. um, but deconstruct it in different ways. So every time I read that page, I do it differently. And yeah. I'm trying to, and even in my mind, I'm trying to decolonize my framework of right. understanding what it means to be right and wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and in this case of, of language, it's really about, like I said, being multilingual. Mm -hmm. And it's on me as someone who is monolingual mm -hmm. to figure out it's all about communication. Right. And if I can learn other languages, yeah. then my ability to, to reach people and become more human and, and to have that human connection is there. Exactly. Rather than expecting, you know, we again, as an American, as a white person, right. when I go to another country, if you can't speak yeah. English to me, I'm not going to communicate with you. Exactly. exactly. Um, one, because of my fragility of messing up <laughs> your language and the right. feeling that I have, but also because... I'm not going to take the time to invest in your culture. Exactly. It's the same here. Yeah. Right? And we say that to black students all the time. We say, um, nobody can, no one's going to understand that outside of your community. Right. And my question is always, why not? Right. Why is it that white people never take the time to even learn black English, for example, or to learn the, the languages that are around them, even in this country? We're a multilingual country, but we insist on English being the, and not just any English, standardized, middle class, almost like upstate, right. <laughs> you know, northern, northern, um, northern English, right? We don't think of any other kinds of Englishes as being the center. Um, and it's privilege, again, enacted. And so, yeah, there's many layers to that conversation. Um, and like I said, Lisa Delpit's response is always, we have to give our students tools. Right. And then give them the consciousness of what the political and social landscape is so they know how to make the decision on how they're going to use those tools. Yeah. But if we don't even bother to make the options available, like, you know, what is it that you're 
going to need in this world, we, we're screwing our kids over and we're making assumptions about their abilities, and usually because we're making assumptions about their abilities. And so, yeah. um, and it's not, it's not clean cut. I want to absolutely destroy the system, right? But notice that I'm speaking this conversation in standard English. Because in my in my schooling, you know, after I after I moved from I moved from a black school to white schools, and I think I was speaking elements of black English in my earlier days. But when I got to the white schools, all I had was standard English. So I actually have don't have the ability to go back to my family's language. Right. That language is gone <laughs> for the most part. Right. I mean, there's parts of it that are there, but it's gone. So I don't want to see kids in that same boat. Yeah, and I think that gets back to the conversation about. You know the force of, I I use the term colonization, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's yeah. that, you know, that colonized frame of only one place is acceptable. Right. It's this, if you are not normalized to be, talking like, looking like, acting yes. like, dressing like, exactly. believing, these things, right. you know, then you are othered, mm-hmm. and wrong. That's right? right. It's that dualistic, and so that gets back to the conversation about what it means to be participating That's right. in this racial system. Exactly. Right? And it's a racial system, like you said, that has these other intersections. So we've got, you know, race, we've got class, we've got gender. Identity, and religion. Right, and religion. Yeah. These kind of, these intersecting, you know, Bell Hooks calls it white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. And I think we've expanded white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchy. Like right, people yeah. have expanded that because there is this kind of conglomerate of isms <laughs> that come together in, in this space of dominance and colonialism, right? right. And that's gone worldwide. Yeah. Um, and as we challenge that system, we're challenging gender norms right. for how we can be. And, there, and this kind of so-called civilizing yeah. practice of spreading white supremacy has been to take away and give us, take away our indigenous culture, language, gender identities, and give us this one way yeah. of being. And so if we're talking about being anti-racist, there's so many layers to it. And Ibrahim right. um, X. Kendi, so he had an article in The Guardian, an interview in The Guardian yesterday that I was just reading this morning. And he talks about it like being anti racist is also to be anti capitalist. Yeah. Right? Because, like, again, these intersecting ways of being in the world that have supported white supremacy and capitalism is right there, <laughs> right on the forefront, turning people's bodies into productive tools in the form of slavery or right. colonial subjects like. Yeah. Yeah, and I also think too on that individual level, like even though you may, you may be doing something that you feel is anti-racist on an individual scale, if you're not making that move on a systems level, right. you're you're actively engaged, right? So I was right. thinking about the the camps that we have the kids in mm-hmm. the other day, and I I, I was finished watching um, a, a Netflix series that had one of the the B subplots was mm-hmm. about the the camps, the mm-hmm. migrant camps, and. Um, I just became very emotional in that, and I and I thought to myself, why why did it take an yeah. act of fiction okay. that was depicting real life for something for me to be right. emotionally and want to be more involved when I knew these things and I knew these things were happening and I've spoken out against them, but I look at it as is that really doing anything? Yeah. Is that enough? Is that really engaging in the system right. systemic issues that exist? Right. Right. And what does that even look like to tear that apart? And I think, you know, in my research with with white folks, um, in some level, you know, I focused on teachers. Part of the problem is they didn't know where to start. Right. They don't know how to address the system because That's they've right. only thought about, well, I can say it on Twitter or I can mm-hmm. argue about it, mm-hmm. but I don't know how to address the systemic issues that I feel like I don't have a power to. Right. 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 And so I think that that's part of this exactly. continued education is, is we move into anti-racist behaviors, right. and I like that framing, of identifying how to actually make a system shift, That's how right. to change it, right? Well, this is the thing. We have to move away from the individualistic mindset, right? right? There's collective action. Correct. We must do collective action. So my teachers who are in schools, you know, there's this kind of curriculum mandates that are passed down to them. And as they're having these conversations in my class, they're like, well, how do we <laughs> challenge the policy? Like, not me individually, but us collectively. Yeah. You know? And is it a teacher strike saying we want something different? Is it um, us, you know, occupying the school board meeting? Is it us, you know, saying we refuse to implement curriculum that's harmful to our kids? But that requires collective action. And I don't think we think about that because we're anti-socialist, anti-communist, because all these things that would promote healthy interactions amongst people are, you know, we villainize those things, right? right? (laughs) Well, and I think that that's part of of the... 
I think at the beginning when I I think you took it to a level that I in my mind really wanted to go but I couldn't quite bring it there intellectually the way you did but in the beginning part of it was this the stigma around the word and how it has just made the work in it stops it from happening. Right. So we get we that's get caught goal. up in the label, right? That's the, that's the goal. <laughs> right? So we get caught up in the label yeah. of, well, I'm not a racist, that's you're right. a racist, right? right? Um, or I don't, you know, this is capitalist or this is socialist, so therefore I can put you in this paradigm, this box right. of, of, of thinking rather than actually deconstructing what it is we're trying to accomplish. Right. And I think that, that we are now moving further and further into this quick Give me the give me the mm-hmm. ten second synopsis because I don't have time because I've got the other ten se- second synopsis in this. Right. You know, I think about the, in the in why nothing gets done mm-hmm. in systems like higher ed or PK twelve right. is because you have leaders who are in positions who only want a bulleted summary, and part of it is right. because that that's the time they have to read, mm-hmm. but they don't ever know the they don't uh, they, well, we aren't we we don't give ourselves the time to understand the nuance of something. Yeah, yeah. And not to keep going back to our president, but he doesn't also want to read or understand yeah. the, the details of something. Right. And so he only has the surface level pieces. Exactly. And with that knowledge, you can't make exactly. a decision. Not that he would make a decision. Well, he's also developing a model of power that is very authoritarian too, right? right? It's very top down. It's very much, I have the power. I say it is going to happen. Right. And he's short, short circuiting these kind of so-called collective spaces where let me collaborate with Congress. Right. I'm going to write a directive and make it happen versus... Right. How do, we, how do we make a coalition to make something happen? And I think most of our leaders that I encounter, especially on this campus and other places that are the most difficult ones, have that authoritarian model, that it's me and it's my word, and I don't have to share power, I don't have to share thought space, I don't have to do anything with y'all, because I'm above y'all. <laughs> yeah. And if we can figure out how to dismantle that kind of leadership structure, you know, that says that, no, we want a collective set of voices, and. What, we, what we're doing right now, whether you're educating yourself or not, even the model that you're a part of is one that stifles these conversations because it lets you decide <laughs> yeah. it's your way or the highway, right? Right. And we were waiting for a benevolent person to get in that spot and hope that that benevolent person can then, <laughs> you know, which is what my colleague is saying to me, I'll become a leader because you can top down now, push forward right. this stuff instead of saying, well, you and I right now could partner up in a department meeting Right. and say we want this to happen and then from the department we collectively work with other departments, right? It's a very different way of thinking about it, but I think it's because our mind is stuck on a very individualistic very top-down model of leadership, right. which is toxic in and of itself, yeah. right? Patriarchal and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We'll return back to our conversation in just one moment. Today you heard us reference uh, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, who wrote a book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. The book was published in 2016, but really has brought forth a lot of great, um, interesting insight into the racist history of the United States, which kind of, I think, was a backdrop to some of our discussion today. So if you want to check that out, you can order it on your favorite book sites. It's available on e-readers, in your library, wherever it may be. Again, the title is Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and the author is Ibram X. Kennedy. Thank you for joining us today yeah. for this discussion. Yeah. It's been a really good I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, cathartic. It is, right? <laughs> At first, before we had this conversation, I'm like, oh, no, I'm not ready for this conversation because they're heavy themes. Yeah. But having talked about it, I'm like, okay. Yeah, I, last night I was going to bed, and I hadn't done as much prep as I would like to generally do for something, and so I had to spend some time. Um, I got up super early this morning and did it. and um, But, yeah, I it, it was... I was nervous because I was like, I know I had an idea. I know we talked about this, but now I'm not really sure because I haven't really, you know, filtered it out. But yeah, I thought it was really, it was really helpful for me, and I always learn so much. And so I'm really appreciative that we were able to have. This yeah, no, this today, is, we're so. a good tag team. I would say. Yeah. Even, even though we didn't have our live audience this time and our and our guests this time, but that's okay. I think we can. And I'm sure our millions of listeners think that we're great. <laughs> Um, so, right. so if you have questions for uh, Erica or me or uh, conversation topics that you'd like to address, you can email us at whitenessinamerica at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, which is whiteness, uh, I'm sorry, disrupt whiteness with one S on whiteness because um, Twitter doesn't allow as many characters. Um, uh, yeah, and, and we'll be happy to get back to you. Um, hopefully our next episode will feature 
uh, Dr. Suzanne Selig. Dr. Selig, she's a faculty in the public health program and she does classes on cultural competence and so she's been doing this for quite some time, especially working in the community and so she'll be able to give us some insights on how these issues play out in her classroom and also her philosophy for how to be introduce change. Yeah especially in public health. Yeah, and I think we're going to continue our conversation and focus more on the anti-racist piece because I think there's more to be discussed at that level. Mm -hmm. So thanks again for joining us. We will see you next time. See you next time.